you know much about me at all, you know that I'm a fan of books. I own quite a few books. I've read quite a few books. Some I've enjoyed, some I've endured. Some of those books I read, as some of you did back in school, and I read them reluctantly. Others I read joyfully and got a lot out of, and there have been books that have really changed my perspective. I'm going to give you a little window into my weirdness. I really didn't enjoy reading as a child until I got a hold of comic books. Now, that sounds kind of weird because you think comic books kind of juvenile stuff, but the words in comic books actually are more, um, are, are, at a high, are written at a higher level than your newspaper. And I actually use comic books, the ones that aren't the wild way out ones, I actually use comic books in my mentoring to help children read because I know that excited me and it excited them. And then I found, I found this series written by Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, John Carter, The Warlord of Mars. Now, this sounds kind of weird, but that really got me excited about reading. And now there's a movie coming out next month. I just got to go see it to see how it compares. But that got me excited reading. And that led to other things, deeper things, more meaningful things, not just fiction, but all kinds of things. So that now I not only read books for uh, sermon preparation and for theological inspiration, I also read books surely for the joy of reading books. And now, you know, I'll, I'll have paper-bound or hard-bound books. I've got books on an iPad. I've got books that are on MP3 I can listen to. The world of books is wide open to anyone who has the slightest hunger to know more, to grow, to, to be inspired, and to be taught. But we want to talk about a special book today. And there are all kinds of books. There are books that are fiction. For instance, Tom Sawyer. I remember reading Tom Sawyer as a child. Gone with the Wind, I never read that one, Uh, and considering the size of it, I probably never will. But those books are fiction. They are intended to tell a story, but they're not intended to relate fact, although there may be a bit of factual information scattered out here and there. There are other books that are nonfiction, books like The Diary of Anne Frank. I remember reading that in high school and having that open my eyes to a whole new world. Uh, A book written by Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. If you haven't read it, it's not an easy read by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a great book to help us to understand the truthfulness of God's Word. And you'll actually be hearing from Josh McDowell a little bit later this morning. And then there's some books that we could classify as fantasy or as fables. For instance, uh, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Those are fantasy Books like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, those are fantasy, fable-type books, all kinds of books. And now we come to talk about the Bible. Is it fact? Is it fiction? Is it fable? Into what category does this book fall? Now, there are people who are going to say this Bible is factual, that you can believe what's in it. And that you can count on it. It's a book of facts. But you know there are a lot of people who say that this book is fiction. That is something that's, that's not really truthful. But it's something that's made up. Like Walt Disney made up Mickey Mouse. Or Stan Lee created Spider-Man. 
It's a figment of someone's imagination. There are other people who say this book is a book of fables, myths. It's a fantasy book. In other words, there may be some kernel of truth in these stories, but as it's been told and retold over the centuries, it's changed so much that you have a hard time going back and finding what truth is actually here. And so which is it? Is it fact? Is it fiction? Or is it a fable? That's the challenge we have before us as we come this morning and we consider God's Word. Because we need to know, if we're standing on the promises, then we need to know, are those promises true? Can I count on those? These ancient words, are they real? Are they true? Can I build my life upon those ancient words? Now, I think you probably have some idea where I come down on this. I believe it's true. I believe the Bible is a true, inerrant, inspired word of God. And I believe it's true because I built my life on it and I found it to be true. But this morning as we come together, I want to give you some reasons that you can have confidence. Now, I'm not going to try to argue that it's fiction or fable. I'm going to try to argue with you that it's fact. Because if it is fact, then we'll know. It isn't fiction, and it isn't fable. And so if you track with me for a little while this morning, I want to give you some reasons that you can believe this book is true, and you can build your life on it. And so let me just go through them. There are three simple, really, truths. The first is this. I can believe that the Bible was recorded faithfully. I can believe that the Bible was recorded faithfully. Now, the three things that suggest that the Bible was indeed recorded passed down to us faithfully. And I want to share those with you. The first sounds kind of weird. The claim of proximity. Well, what in the world is that? It basically means that the writers of these books were geographically and chronologically at right there when they wrote it, they were at the time of the events that occurred. Now, you'll see a lot of ancient writings that are written actually hundreds of years after the actual events took place by writers who've never even been to the place where those events were. The Bible's not like that. In the Bible, you have men who have written down what they have seen and heard. You have men who have written down, they were there chronologically in time. They were there geographically in space. And when we take a look at what it takes to make something valid or true, in other words, to give it that gravitas, to know, to count on that, it's, that we can count on that, that this did take place, then one of the things that historians look at is proximity. How close was it chronologically? How close was it geographically? Historians admit that the greater credibility must be granted to writers who both geographically and chronologically are close to the events that they report. And so, question is, is that true for the Bible? Well, how do we know? Well, let me just share with you three things just from out of the New Testament that I think help us to understand this idea of proximity. And the first is this, John wrote in 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, 
which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim. Now, what's he saying? We were there. We are eyewitnesses to the events. We not only heard what was said and saw what was done, we actually laid hands on it. We touched this. You can't get any closer in proximity than that. Or what Peter wrote in 2 Peter. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were what? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it firsthand. If you were in a court of law, isn't that what they want? They don't want to know what your brother told you about something that happened. If you were in a court of law, giving testimony, what did you see? What did you experience? What did you touch? What did you hear? And that's what we have in the Bible. And then Peter wrote in Acts 10, or said in Acts 10, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Now, that's pretty robust statements on behalf of proximity. However, there are a lot of people who said, you know what, Peter couldn't have written those things. Paul couldn't have written those things. Those things are actually written down, though, a century or more after these guys were dead gone. You can't count on this to be true. Even though we read it here, you can't count on that to be accurate. Well, one such guy was John A.T. Robinson. I don't know if he's related to Tom Robinson or not. Could be. But he was a renowned scholar, a biblical scholar. And he bought into this idea that what we have recorded is actually took place long after. I mean, it was recorded long after the events, that Peter didn't write this stuff down, that Paul didn't write this stuff down. But, but people wrote it down 100 years or so after they were dead and gone. But as kind of a, a joke, he decided... Let me just check it out. Let me just go back and look at the biblical record, to look at the biblical books and to research it and come to this conclusion so I can definitively say that there's no way these were written by the guys who claimed to write them. Well, he began to do the research. And you know what his conclusion was? That these were indeed the works of the apostles that they either wrote these down or dictated them to be written down. Now, I want to tell you about Robinson, not Tom, but John A.T. When I was in seminary, I bought a series of books called Word Pictures in the New Testament, authored by John A.T. Robinson. Here's a guy who started by saying, This could not be real, but ended up giving to pastors and teachers a veritable treasure of biblical guidance. And so I'm grateful that God led him on that quest, on that journey to discover what he did about God's word. And so the first argument that we have, that we have, the Bible is recorded faithfully is proximity. That it took place, and the guys wrote it down. They were there chronologically. They were there geographically. 
The second argument in this is the invitation to investigation. Now, an investigation is something that you set out on to to prove that it's real. And the Bible truly invites us to check it out. Check it out and see if it's real. Now, here's what I mean. When Jesus walked around and taught the things he taught and did the miracles that he did, did he do it in back rooms? Did he do it privately so that no one saw it? No. Go back and look at the events in the life of Jesus, and they were done publicly, sometimes in front of thousands of people who could testify to what they heard and what they saw. They literally heard the Sermon on the Mount. They literally ate the bread and the fish that Jesus multiplied. Now, not everything was done in front of thousands of people, but very few things were done in front of only one or two people. They were always done publicly. Now, why is this important? Because when these biblical writers began to write these things down, there would have been people still alive who could have said, bull, I was there, didn't happen. And so we can actually investigate this. We can actually go back and look at it and see, is this stuff true? Is it valid? Can we count on this? We can check it out. We can investigate it. That's not true with every faith. Let me just give you two this morning. First of all, is Islam. I don't know if you've studied Islam at all, but if you have, this is what you've discovered. That Muhammad was evidently dictated the words to the Quran by an angel. It was dictated to him. There's no crowd of people around to witness it. Dictated to him. There's no way to investigate that. You either believe it or you don't. Another one. Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism. How do we get the Book of Mormon? Joseph Smith said that he found a collection of golden plates in which was inscribed words that he didn't know. And that an angel came and helped him translate those books into what we have as the Book of Mormon. And then those plates are just disappeared. They're gone. No way to go back and validate it. You either take his word for it or you don't. There's no investigation that can be done. But with Scripture, there is. With Scripture, you can go back and check it out. I want to give you probably the greatest validity thing on this. And that is the disciples themselves, those people that walked with Jesus. If you go back and you study church history, what you discover is that many of these men died very painful deaths. And they died for one reason. Because they said, we saw this. We heard this. We've seen and touched the resurrected Jesus Christ. And we will not denounce it. Now, I got to tell you, a liar, a liar will insist on the truth that he's saying, but only a fool is going to invite you to investigate what he knows to be proven. Only a fool is going to die for a lie. And so we're invited implicitly to investigate the claims of Scripture. The, the, third, the third proof under this is this, the scarcity 
scarcity of apparent contradictions. Now, you and I have probably both heard this hundreds of times. The Bible is full of contradictions. The Bible is full of contradictions. Well, I'm here to tell you the Bible isn't full of contradictions. Now, the Bible does have things in there that are hard to understand, and there are things that are mysterious in the Bible. And there are, as you look at it on the surface, things that appear to be contradictory. I'll go ahead and admit that right up front. But as we take a look at what Scripture says, as we take a look at these apparent contradictions, spending some time actually delving into it rather than just tossing it out on the garbage heap can help us to really understand what was meant here. And sometimes those things that appear to be contradictions aren't contradictory at all. Sometimes you have gospel writers who may not record exactly everything that the other one records. For instance, if, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were actually just carbon copies identical, we wouldn't need but one. But they are views from four different areas on the life and ministry of Jesus that when put together create a beautiful harmony of God's truth. And when it comes to taking a look at the books of the Bible... This is, this is absolutely fascinating because most of us grow up, we grow up in vacation Bible school, Sunday school, our little Bible studies. We grow up hearing all these Old Testament stories, Samson and Delilah, David and Goliath. We grow up hearing these stories, but not seeing how they fit together. I mean, it blew my mind the first time I actually read the John the Baptist saying about Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and it clicked. He's talking about the Passover Lamb from the book of Exodus. And what you're saying is the book of John and the book of Exodus aren't just out there floating around, not connected in any way. God has woven his truth through Scripture, Old and New Testament, so that what we have is not a bunch of gathered stories, but a collective whole, a truth that God has given us through the centuries. This is something that as you begin to study the Bible, and I want to encourage you to read it, to read, and sometimes to, to take time to read large chunks of it rather than just morsels of it so that you can get this panoramic view. I don't know if, you've, if you have any children in Powerhouse or you ever go back to Powerhouse, if you look on the back wall, what Glad has on the back wall is a timeline of biblical events. And as he talks about an event, he goes back and he asks the kids, how does this fit with the overall scheme of what God was doing through history? And so they begin to place those events in time and see how they tie together in God's truth. You see, the writings of the Bible come from vastly different human beings, over 40 of them, in fact. Some are shepherds, soldiers, they're prophets and poets, kings, scholars, statesmen, musicians, masters, servants, tax collectors, and tent makers, that these books could be assembled into one book and yet retain such unity and such scarcity of apparent contradictions is one of the reasons to believe the Bible was faithfully recorded. Now, we're just getting started. Not only was the Bible faithfully recorded, 
But I can also be confident that the Bible was relayed accurately. In other words, it came down to us accurately. See, what's the point of being able to go back and say the Bible was true when it was written if I can't take this that I have in my hands today and say this is true today? This is consistent with what was written down by prophets and apostles. If I can't do that, then how can I count on this for my daily life? How can I stand on these promises if I don't know these promises are true? After all, they didn't have photocopy machines back in the time of Moses. They didn't even have them back in the time of Paul. Things were transcribed by hand. How do I know? How do I know that those people didn't just change stuff to suit their own theology? How do I know that they didn't just leave out entire chunks or or add other stuff to it? How do I know it? Well, if if you, uh, this morning, uh, this morning uh, we had one of our God Quest studies, and this afternoon we'll have a couple more during the week. I got to tell you, this is one of the most exciting video portions to God Quest of the whole series. And if you've made plans to be out of town on the day that your grace group meets, I want to encourage you to find another one. It's worth your time and effort to plug into this because what you're going to discover is the reliability of the transmission. And I just want to give you a little taste of that right now. There's a guy named Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell was the one who wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And Josh McDowell is a father of Sean McDowell, who does the introductories to all of our, who's kind of the, the MC for this entire thing. And I want you to hear some of the words from Josh McDowell as he did his investigation as to the reliability of Scripture. Let's take a moment to watch that. When I set out to write Evidence That Demands a Verdict to make a joke of Christianity intellectually, I knew there were two things I had to check out. One, could I hold the New Testament in my hand and say what I have is what was written down or has it been changed? Second, was what was written down true? In other words, did Jesus really say that? Did he really do that? After examining the evidence, and I'm in abundance of evidence, I concluded that what I have is what was written down. It has not been changed. And second, what was written down was true. Just one little piece of that evidence, which is very significant all, comes to the manuscripts. You see, in studying ancient literature, a manuscript is a handwritten copy over against a printed copy. And the more manuscripts you have, the easier it is to reconstruct the original, the autographer, to a percentage of a pure text, that what you have is what was written down. For example, if you have, say, 20 manuscripts, and in these 20 manuscripts, you have the Gospel of John. But you might have three different renderings in John 3.16. Some might say, for God so loved the world. Others might say, God thought a lot about the world. And others might say, well, God thought the world was cool. Now, how do you know what was in the original? With 20 manuscripts, you can't. There is no way you can determine. But if you have four or 500 manuscripts, it's very easy to take those and reconstruct to a percentage of a pure text. But what I learned with the New Testament, to my surprise, I was able to document 24,633 manuscripts. That's uncanny when you look at history. For example, 
The number two book in all history in manuscript authority is the Iliad by Homer with 643 manuscripts. Between number one, the New Testament, and number two, the Iliad, there's 24,000 difference in manuscripts. And I was able to document how you can take those manuscripts and you can reconstruct the original to about a 99.5% pure text. I can hold the New Testament in my hand and say what I have is what was written down and what was written down was true. But so what? How does that affect your life? Probably the biggest area of impact it had in my life was that I became convinced intellectually and more so today that it is true that the New Testament is the word of God and it's accurate historically, etc. As a result, when I would come up against a crisis where many people would back away from their Christian faith, I moved forward because I knew it was true. An example. Between 6 and 13 years of age, I was severely sexually abused. And after I became a Christian, uh, a man mentored me for six months, and I knew he was going to say it to me. He said, Josh, you need to forgive him. I said, no way. I want him to burn in hell, and I will escort him there. But here was my dilemma. I knew the Bible was true. And I knew the Bible commanded us, God's Word commanded us to forgive. And he said, if we would forgive, he would honor it. So I forgave him. But I want you to understand something. I didn't do it because I had a goody, good feeling or anything else. I did it because I knew it was the right thing to do, because I could trust the New Testament. It was true. And that intellectual commitment to the scriptures has carried me through uh, crises after crises in my life and led to a greater consistency instead of an up and down experience in your walk with Christ. The God Quest study this week is going to go into a lot more detail than we can right now, but there is no book or document of the ancient world that is as verified, accurate as the Bible is. None at all. We can count on it. One of the things you're going to learn this week, and I just want to touch on it, is there was a shepherd who was out searching for treasure, and the way he did it, he'd throw stones into some caves. Well, what he discovered was a treasure beyond measure, and that is the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls date to about 125 B.C. Why is that significant? Well, because the Dead Sea Scrolls are about a thousand years older than any Old Testament manuscript we'd ever had. The oldest we'd have was 900 A.D. These dated to 125 B.C. Now, why is this significant? We need to find out whether or not, we've talked a little bit about the New Testament, whether or not the entire Bible was translated accurately through the centuries or whether people took liberties with it. How do we do that? We take a look at what was written, what we've got from 125 B.C., and we compare that to what we already had at 900 A.D. and see within a thousand years how accurate the translation was. Wouldn't that be helpful to know that over a thousand years, that's a long time, over a thousand years, how well the Bible was translated from year after year after year? Well, here's what was discovered. The Hebrew Bible proved to be identical word for word in more than 95% of the text, and what differences they did find were mainly in spelling 
variation. Over a period of a thousand years, handwritten. That is absolutely incredible. That the Bible has been preserved for us. The truthfulness of it. For centuries. And we can count on it to be true. And so, the first reason we can believe is that the Bible was recorded faithfully. The second is... The second is that it was preserved for us, relayed accurately. And this is the third and final. And and that is, I can be grateful that the Bible has been reinforced externally. Now, what does that mean? That it was put together leather bound? No, not at all. If a person really wants to study historical documents, and one of the things they go back and look at is other historical documents of that time. Did other extra biblical writers, people outside the Bible itself, refer to the same truths that we find here in other words, is what the Bible says verified in other sources? And the answer is yes. It is. I just want to take a few minutes to talk about that. For instance, the Bible alone, the New Testament alone, is so extensively quote, quoted outside the New Testament that you could literally reconstruct all 27 books of the Bible from Matthew to Revelation virtually word for word from things that were written about the Bible later. In other words, it's been verified in that way. So now you're not only looking at the biblical text, you're looking at extra biblical texts that verify that text. Now, even more, there are non-Christian writers who also referred to events that we find in the Bible. Just two of those are the Roman historian Tacitus and the Jewish historian Josephus. And they write about the very things that we read recorded in Scripture. In addition, archaeology has has just overwhelmingly reaffirmed the truthfulness and accuracy of the Bible. I don't want to go into a lot of it, but Nelson Gluck, a renowned Jewish archaeologist, former president of Hebrew University in Cincinnati, wrote this. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Now, that is pretty meaty stuff. For a Jewish professor to take a look at it and say that no archaeological evidence has ever negated biblical references. As we discover more and we discover more and we discover more, what we find out is that archaeology actually reinforces our faith, doesn't undermine it. We don't need to fear science because ultimately any search for truth is going to verify what God has said. Now, just this week, I read that a a, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary has discovered the oldest manuscript for the Gospel of Mark. It dated to the first century. That means we don't have the original autographs. We don't have what Mark wrote down, okay? But now we have something that we know was recorded within the lifetime of those who actually lived it. This is not something that somebody created. This is not something that King James created in the 1500s. This is something that archaeology verifies and reinforces. 
There's every reason to believe that the Bible we have has been recorded faithfully, relayed accurately, and reinforced externally. But absolutely none of that matters. None of it matters if we don't respond to it appropriately. This is what John wrote. I see near the end of his gospel. John says, John 20, 31, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John didn't write this down the same way we, that he didn't write it down just to, to get rid of information. When we read it, it's not like reading USA Today, Wall Street Journal. John said, you know, there's a reason that this is preserved for you. There's a reason you have this. And it's so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so that you may have life in him. If you're not a believer, I want to, I want to challenge you with two things. First of all, I want to challenge you to read 2% of this book. I want to challenge you to read 2% of it, the Gospel of John, 21 chapters. I want to challenge you to read it. And if after reading it, you're not convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, at least you've given it a shot. At least you've, you can be intellectually honest about it. 2%, the Gospel of John, and then come talk to me. The other thing, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ that needs to happen, is that you need to give your heart and life to him. You need to receive him as Savior and Lord. You may believe this is true or not. But you know, when you get to heaven, God's not going to say, hey, you believe the Bible is true, come on in. The only thing that's going to matter when you stand before the judgment seat of God is, what would you do with my son? My son whom I sent to die on a cross for you, what would you do with him? I gave you the revelation that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to me except through him. What would you do with that? I told you very explicitly that I love the world so much that I gave my son to die on a cross that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What would you do with that? Did you embrace it as true? Did you repent of your sin and turn to Christ in faith? Or did you ignore it and pretend like it didn't exist? For some of you today, you may need to come and receive Christ as Savior. For others, you may need a church home. I can't promise you Grace Fellowship's a perfect church, but I can promise you this. We believe, and as best as we're able, empowered by the Holy Spirit, live by God's revealed truth. You need God's truth. It's not an appendage. It's not an add-on. It's not an extra. It is essential for you. And you need a church family that believes that too. Others of you may just need to come and pray. And you may need to say to God, God, I have neglected your truth. I have neglected your word. I don't crack it open except on Sundays and maybe in a Bible study class. Other than that... It collects dust. And God, I know you've got something you want to say. And I know you want to give me life through this word. And I want to begin today to walk in it.
Whatever it is God's leading you to do, this is your opportunity to respond to him.